You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. You notice that we sang that song, God Moves. The words from that song actually were written by William Cowper. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. There was a whole poem that Cowper wrote um, about the providence of God and his workings in, in history. And a little bit of background behind that, William Cowper was an individual, a Christian, who suffered from a chronic depression, I mean, massive depression, even suicidal tendencies at one time. His pastor was John Newton, the the redeemed slave trader who wrote Amazing Grace. Um, Newton was his pastor, and at times Cowper would uh, Newton would take Cowper into his own home to keep him from doing anything to harm himself. And Cowper was a genuine believer, but he wrestled with depression his whole life, never got over it. Um, and he a lot of his, Cowper's writings and his poems are expressions of how he dealt with trusting in God even in the midst of depression. So that was the the life lesson of somebody who wrestled his whole life with pressing, crushing depression, and was never able to get victory over that even until he died. And he didn't die from a suicide. I'm not sure how he died, but he did learn by the grace of God to walk with Christ in the midst of very dark times. Uh, if you want a little biography on William Cowper, and all of this is just extra, I guess. If you want a little biography on William Cowper, you can read um, a book that John Piper wrote. It's available on his website. All of Piper's books are free. He wrote a little mini biography on uh, William Cowper. And uh, that, that, I think, would be a benefit to you and a blessing to you. John 9. John 9. We're going to read together the first 12 verses, and then we'll open in prayer. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. <clears throat> and I'm going to pause there just for a moment. Why is it that God allows some people to wrestle with depression their whole lives? It's so that the works of God might be displayed in him, right? Really, that's the answer to every question. Why does God do this? Why has God allowed this? Why has God ordained this? Why has God caused this? So that the works of God might be displayed in him. There's always a purpose and always a reason behind it. Verse 4, We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, How then were your eyes opened? He answered, the man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. Let's pray together. Father, it is our heart's desire as it is the desire of all your people to learn more of you in your word, which you have given to us so that we might know you. We pray that you would send your spirit to be our teacher this morning, that you would guide us in our understanding. Help us to think clearly, help us to see clearly in your word, so that we might give heartfelt obedience to you out of loving hearts for all that you have done and given to us. May we as your people glorify you as we understand you more deeply and more profoundly. Help us to appreciate your works which have been displayed in this man for us to see. 
we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you don't have to swim long in Christian circles to run across claims of people who claim to have the ability to heal people or to even raise people from the dead. In fact, if you watch Christian television or what passes as Christian television for more than an hour, you will come across somebody who claims to have the ability to heal people or to even raise the dead. And in recent years, and I would say probably the last 20 to 25 years, the and this is not poking fun at charismatics, but the charismatic movement has seen a proliferation of people who have stepped onto the stage in their own leadership and have made claims to be able to heal people of all kinds of ailments. Some of these men are obvious charlatans, and they can be spotted by their false doctrine and their false teachings, and and uh, they're just they're easy to spot. They're, they're charlatans. They're wolves. You can see them a mile away. Others are not so easy to spot. Some of them are charlatans that are not so easy to pick out of the crowd, and you have to be extra discerning, and you have to be extra scrupulous as you examine them and their claims and their abilities. Uh, But there are people who claim that they are doing the same thing that Jesus and the apostles did in healing men of all kinds of afflictions and all kinds of ailments, and some of them have even claimed the power and ability to raise people from the dead and say that they can document that they have done resurrections. Ironically, when you ask them for proof of these things, the proof is very slow coming. And more often than not, in fact, all of the times, the proof or the eyewitnesses, you can't contact them, you can't locate them, you don't know who these people are. And the the proof itself is thin. In fact, it doesn't match the claims. And recently in Christianity, there has been a group um, that has kind of come to the forefront. I would say within the last five years, it's gaining steam called the New Apostolic Reformation. And you've heard me refer to this the New Apostolic Reformation, or NAR. Its leadership, like Bill Johnson out of Redding, California, has done everything that they have in their power to make their movement almost mainstream in Christianity. And there's actually a group that has come out of that group that is very influential, a band called Jesus Culture. I don't know if you've heard of Jesus Culture or not. They're very popular in today's setting. They are as dangerous as they are popular because they are working overtime to make the teachings of the new apostolic reformation, all their false doctrines and their extreme manifestations, which are their their charismatic theology on steroids. It is beyond the pale of clear-thinking charismatic theology. Way out there. Unorthodox, unchristian, unbiblical in its entirety. They are as dangerous as they are popular. And they are claiming the ability to do the same things that Jesus and the apostles did. And these... False teachers who, and we've talked about them before in different seminars and sessions that we've done, Sunday school, men like Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland, they claim to be doing the same things that Jesus and the apostles did. They, they, their claim is this. The church age began with signs and wonders and an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the presence of apostles. That was how the church age began. Then they say the church age is going to conclude, and guess what? We are in the end of the church age according to them. The church age is going to conclude with the very same thing, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, signs and wonders in the presence of new apostles. Thus the term new apostolic reformation, because these men claim to have apostolic authority and apostolic powers to do signs and wonders. Well, just a cursory reading of the New Testament and the Gospels in the book of Acts and the power and and a description, that description of the power of the apostles, just a cursory reading of that and comparing that to the Signs and wonders of the miracles that are being done by these new modern apostles shows that what they are claiming to do and what they are saying they have the ability to do pales in comparison and doesn't even match up at all 
with what Jesus and the apostles did. So I want to give you, since we're talking about a miracle of Jesus and healing a man, I'm going to give you quickly six characteristics of the miracles that Jesus and the apostles did. And you can take these six characteristics, you'll see them all the way through the Gospels and the book of Acts, and you can compare this to the claims being made by modern quote-unquote apostles. First, Jesus healed with only a word or a touch. He healed with only a word or a touch. Sometimes he just had to speak it and it was so. Other times he touched somebody. Other times people touched him. As we saw in Mark 8, he applied spit to the eyes. In, in one instance in Mark, he applied spit to the tongue of a mute man. Uh, it was just the healing touch or a word. You can compare that to the stage show antics of modern day healers where they take off their $2,500 suit coat and wave it over their head. and People fall down in an emotional euphoria and they shake about on the ground. None of those type of lights and big band and antics and all of the circus style three ring baloney that goes on in the name of Christianity today. Just a touch or a word. No fanfare, no stadiums, no offerings, no lights, just a word or a touch. Second, Jesus healed instantly. Instantly. He didn't heal somebody and say, okay, now you go home and you keep giving to our ministry. You keep sowing your seed and you'll find that that healing will take place over the course of many months. You keep seeing your doctor and taking your medications and you'll get your healing. No, no. Jesus healed instantly. The mute spoke. Just like that. Blind man sees instantly. You say, what about the exception of Mark 8? That was really no exception. It was still an instantaneous healing. Jesus did it in two stages. We saw weeks ago what the reason for that two-stage healing was. But still, when he saw a man walking about like trees, he saw them instantly, right? And when he saw them clearly, he saw them instantly. Not over the course of months or weeks, he healed men instantly. Third, Jesus healed completely. The crippled man did not get up and limp out of the pool in John 5. The, the lame did not get up and, and drag themselves out the door. The, the, the men who were blind did not see just a little bit better than they had prior to. The person whose leg was shorter is not able to walk just a little bit better. Now I can walk. I still limp, but I can walk without crutches. No, it was a complete healing. A total healing. Fourth, Jesus healed everyone. I'm reading through the book of Matthew in my own, my own quiet time in the mornings now. And I'm, I'm struck at how Matthew uses this constantly. He healed all who were brought to him. He healed everyone who came to him. He healed them all. And all of them were healed. Matthew says this over and over and over again. Nobody ever left the presence of Jesus who came with an infirmity and left with that infirmity. Do you remember our friend Justin Peters? You've heard him tell you about the dozens, dozens of these conferences and conventions that he goes to and he comes in with his infirmity and he leaves, guess what? The exact same infirmity. He, he never passes their pre-screening process. He's never allowed onto the stage to be healed because he doesn't have the type of illness that they heal on TV. He has the type of illness that you have to go home and give money to get healed. Or you have to go home and come back next time and get healed. And Justin leaves with hundreds of people who have gone to dozens of these conferences. And just in case you don't know Justin, he doesn't go to these conferences to get healed. He goes to these conferences to expose their false teaching. Jesus healed completely and he healed everyone. Fifth, Jesus healed organic physical diseases, not invisible ailments. Not gout in the toe, not an abdominal pain, not lower back pain, not chronic headaches. He healed organic physical diseases, withered hands, blind eyes, unable to speak, deaf ears, crippled spines, leprosy, organic, physical, visible, confirmable infirmities. Now contrast that with the faith healer that you see today. 
who knows there's somebody out there in TV land. Yeah, you've got a lower back pain right now, don't you? There's somebody out there. Yeah, that's me. i got lower back pain. I can. The Lord is telling me right now he's going to heal you. He's going to heal you. That back pain is gone. And that wasn't me that he was talking about. He was talking about somebody else because I still have my lower back pain. Organic physical ailments and diseases which were visible, not invisible ailments. And sixth, and despite all of the claims to the contrary, no modern day healer has been able to do this. He raised the dead. John 11, he raised the dead. Jesus healed with a word or a touch. He healed instantly. He healed completely. He healed everyone. He healed organic diseases. And he raised the dead. And nobody today does that. In a, you would think that when, in an era when everybody walks around carrying a high-definition video camera with them everywhere that you go, that one of these guys would be able to get a videotape of an actual resurrection of a three-day dead corpse on video. You would think that would happen, but it doesn't happen. Because they're charlatans. Now compare those six features. We see some of them here in John 9 with the man who was born blind. He was healed of a real organic physical ailment, not an invisible ailment or an unconfirmable ailment, but he was born blind and everybody knew him to be the blind man. He begged for a living. He was blind. He had the inability to see. It was an organic, a problem with one of his organs, an organic ailment that he had. Second, Jesus healed him instantly. When he washed the clay off, he could see instantly. Not over the course of months or weeks or years, but instantly. And third, Jesus healed him completely. He saw. And he saw everything and he saw everything clearly. This is one of the characteristics of Jesus' miracles. When Jesus and when the apostles in the book of Acts as well, when they healed somebody, it was a complete healing. In Acts chapter 3, the man who was at the temple gate called Beautiful, when Peter and John came into the temple to worship, you remember the guy was crippled there, and he asked Peter and John for money, and Peter and John said, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, get up and walk. The man got up, and the text says he got up, and he was leaping about in the temple. The man was given the ability to walk, and listen, he didn't have to learn how to use his abilities. You ever notice this of the the miracles in the gospel, when Jesus healed people, they've got not only the healing, but also the ability to use their newfound abilities. So a mute person, for instance, didn't have to learn how to speak. Even though his tongue was loose, he could instantly speak, and he didn't have to go to speech therapy. He didn't have to learn how to say some of the difficult syllables and the difficult sounds of the Hebrew language, and it's filled with difficult syllables and difficult sounds. He didn't have to learn any of that. They just spoke as if they had been speaking their whole lives. The man who was healed in John 5, when Jesus said, pick up your pallet and walk, he didn't stand up and say, okay, now, how do I do this walking thing? I have the ability to stand up, but I don't know how to walk. And he didn't say to Jesus, look, I just learned how to walk. You can't ask me to carry anything. I mean, I don't even know how to deal with, I don't even know how to deal with lopsided weight in this instance. I just learned seconds ago, I just got the ability to walk. No, he picked up his pallet and walked out of there as if he could carry anything, as if he had been carrying things his whole life. Not only did he receive the ability, the healing, but he received the ability to use his newfound healing or his capacity. Now, this makes me wonder, the man who was born blind in John 9, he did not have to learn how to deal with depth perception. When he saw, he had not only the sight given to him, but there was nothing that he needed to learn about how to use his sight. There's no record of that anywhere in the New Testament. Any of these men who were born blind or who were blind and then were healed. And so I ask myself the question, I wonder, and this is something you can discuss over lunch, I wonder, did the man who was born blind, when he received the ability to see, did he have to learn what a color was and what the colors were? Did he have to learn what symbols represented what numbers? Did he have to learn what sights represented what textures? Or did he just know, that's pink, and that's red, and that's purple? 
Or did he have to ask somebody, what is this? Well, that's green. Okay, well, if that's green, then what is this? Well, that's green too. Okay, well, what is this? That's green. And this down here? Well, that's green. You mean all of these are green? Now, women are sitting there saying, no, this is... Uh... <laughs> but to the guys, it's green and it's all green, right? There's no shades of green, there's just green. Did the man who was born blind, did he have to learn what the colors were? Or did he just have that ability? Was that part of his miracle of sight? When Jesus healed men, he healed them completely. So discuss that over lunch. Now, the man born blind. With a miracle like this, a radical miracle like this, a man who was born, who is now able to see, it is complete, it is instant, it is an organic miracle, that would attract a lot of attention. A lot of attention. And that's exactly what we get in John 9. The bulk of this chapter is about the reaction to the miracle. We get a lot of people talking about this and a lot of questions about it, and the man becomes sort of the central figure in answering all of these questions as we see the reactions to people. I was thinking this last week, I cannot think of another miracle in all of the New Testament where we get as much detail given to us just about the reaction. Now, sometimes we'll read of a miracle and it says they walked away wondering, or they walked away in awe, or they were amazed, or they went and told people about this. Just one little sentence there. All of John 9, all of John 9 is about the reaction. We get the reaction of the man's parents, the reaction of the man's neighbors, the reaction of his acquaintances, the reaction of the synagogue leaders. Everybody's reacting to this. That's what makes, that's what makes this this whole episode so unique and so interesting. Well, today we're going to look at the reaction of his neighbors and his acquaintances in John 9. We're going to look at verses 8 through 12. 8 through 12. And you will notice that there are two different groups of people mentioned in verse 8. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is not this the one who used to sit and beg? So there are two groups mentioned here. His neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar. His neighbors are probably those who know him best. They are the ones who live around him. And it says in John 9, verse 7, that he went and he washed and he came back seeing. He came back seeing, but it doesn't really say that he came back to the temple. He probably came back to his house, which is where he encountered the neighbors. And maybe on the way from the pool to the temple, he stopped in at home to show mom and dad what had happened, to show off what had happened. But he came back seeing, and his neighbors noticed this. In fact, two groups of peoples noticed this his neighbors, and those who previously saw him as a beggar. The neighbors are those who are close. These may have been folks who grew up around him. These may have been people who had lived around him his whole life. These neighbors may have lived right next door to his mom and his dad or in the same neighborhood. And so they were familiar and they remember a time when this little this man was born as a little baby and they remember the pain and the doubt and the uncertainty and the frustration when his parents realized that their little baby boy had been born blind. And these neighbors maybe watched this man grow up, watched him learn how to speak and learn how to walk and learn how to interact in a world that was completely dark to him. They knew him and they knew him best and they knew him by sight and they would have known his name. And then there was a second group of people, those who formerly saw him as a beggar. Now they knew him not as a neighbor, but as the beggar. You know the beggar? Which beggar? The one that lives down the street and around the corner. Oh yeah, that one. They didn't know his name. Did he have a name? He certainly had a name. But they didn't know his name. They just knew him as the one who used to beg. They knew him and his affliction and his plight from afar. And quite frankly, for most of us, that's how we enjoy uh, knowing people who are afflicted and are destitute, right? From afar. We like to know them as the person over there, but not as the person that is close to us. They knew him just as the beggar. Now, maybe they had seen him wander through their neighborhood on the way to the temple a couple times a week to beg for alms at the temple gate. Maybe they had walked in and out of the temple and had seen him and felt compassion and gave him some money for a time or two. They just simply knew him as the one who used to beg. Those are the two groups of people, his neighbors 
and the beg- and those who knew him as a beggar. Now look at their inquiry. Oh, before we look at their inquiry, let me ask you this. How long do you think it was, how long do you think it took before his neighbors and those who formerly saw him as the beggar, how long do you think it took for them to notice that he was changed, that something was different? Probably instantly, right? I mean, can you imagine that? Be- uh, people who are blind usually have a certain gait, a certain way of walking about them. And you can tell that something is not right. They're, they're much more slow. They're much more methodical. They're much more unsure. Um, the way that they walk, the way that they carry themselves, the way that they carry their head, you can tell that something is not right in their eyes because they're blind. They, they don't respond by looking or turning their head toward noises because it doesn't do them any good to do that. They can't see where it came from anyway. So they have a certain aura about them, a certain countenance. But when this man was, when this man received his ability to see, how long do you think it took his neighbors to notice something was wrong? As he's walking into the neighborhood, looking around, seeing things. Hey, Mr. Jones, making eye contact. Maybe not Mr. Jones, because that's not a very Jewish name. But hey, Mr. Levi, hey, Mr. Levi, making eye contact and waving and saying hi and responding to sounds and his eyes looking and focusing in on things and seeing things, they would have noticed it right away. Now, I, I always, whenever I'm reading Scripture, I always put myself in the passage and I ask myself, how long would it have taken people to figure out that I could see? Now, I can think of all kinds of practical jokes that I could play on somebody and on people who think you are blind when in actuality you could see. So it might have taken people weeks or even months to figure out that I could actually see things before they caught on. Eventually, you would slip up and people would say, hey, how did he do that or how did he know that? But this man didn't think that way. He just There is an instant change that has taken place. He's probably so overcome with joy, exuberance, and thrilled with what has happened to him that as he walks into his neighborhood, people begin to notice it right away. Is this, they say, not the one who used to sit and beg? Is this not him? Leon Morris in his commentary on the Gospel of John says that question is asked, the way the question is asked in the Greek, it expects an affirmative answer. So they're saying this, this is, this is the one who used to sit and beg, right? I mean, it's expecting an answer in the affirmative, but it is an expression of wonder or awe. This is him? This, this is the man? But we can't believe this is the man. This is the one who used to sit and beg. That is probably the expression of his neighbors, those who knew him best. They know who he is, but they can't believe that he is who he is because he has been so changed. So another group, others were saying, verse 9, this is he. They're affirming that. So these are probably neighbors, who, people who know him well. This is the one. Still others were saying, no, but he is like him. All beggars look alike, right? Eventually they do. All the homeless people wearing the signs on the on the roadside, eventually they all look alike. And if you've seen one, you've seen a thousand of them, right? We become very familiar with people and things and sights in our environment and in our, our cities and our areas where we live that you begin to pass right through them and you begin to see them no more. This man is not him. This man is somebody who is like him. Maybe it's a case of mistaken identity. Maybe he's a Maybe he's a long-lost brother who's come home. Maybe he's a distant cousin or even a close cousin, who looks a lot like him. This is not the man, but this is like the man. And they believe in this may be a case of mistaken identity. Now, you can understand how they would see him, but not really get who he is. Have you ever met somebody or run into somebody that you think you're pretty sure this is who that is, but you're not quite sure that this is who that is? And you're not wondering, is this him, or is this somebody who is like him? This happened with a realtor just a few a few months ago, actually, who was overshowing our old a church building, and we were having a conversation about things, and pretty soon I just, it kind of a pause in the conversation, I, I said to him, do I know you from somewhere? And he said, I was just going to ask you the exact same thing. Where have we met? 
Where did you go? And then you go through all of the, all of the list of possibilities, right? Did you, did, where did you work before you were a realtor? Where did you work before you were a pastor? You ever attend our church? Did your kids ever come to Awana here? You ever coach in SSA? Where'd you go to school? When did you graduate? You start going through all these, trying to figure out where is this connection? We never did get to the end of it. I know, I know I've seen him somewhere. And, and even to this day, I wonder, is he somebody I've met and seen? Or is this just somebody who is like somebody I have met and seen? Is he him or is he another man? I saw him a couple weeks ago. I said, have you ever figured out where we know each other from? And he said, no, I still don't know. And so we kind of quizzed each other a little bit more. still don't know where I've seen him from. Maybe I've never met the guy before in my life. But listen, I have noticed as I have begun to start thinking about the potential possibility of one day approaching middle age, I have noticed that everybody I meet reminds me of somebody else. Have you noticed that? And Deidre and I play this little game with each other where we will be, we'll meet somebody and then when we leave we'll say, doesn't he remind you of so-and-so? Oh yeah, totally. Or we'll say, who does he remind you of? So-and-so. Oh, absolutely. And mannerisms, the bald head, everything about it. Just, just totally that person. Or you'll say, or we'll say to each other, if, if he, if so-and-so was a girl, that's what he would look like. <laughs> Have you done that? Everybody that you meet reminds you of somebody else and you're not quite sure. Is he the one or is he somebody else? I was walking out of, and this is, I was walking out of a restaurant just a um, few months ago, and I walked up to somebody that I was absolutely certain that I knew. Turns out, I didn't know them. And I walked up, and I didn't realize that I didn't know them until I was about two sentences in. And unfortunately, one of those sentences was, hey, Tom, how you doing? It's been a long time since I've seen you. Now, I'm not an expert in body language, but there is something about someone's handshake and their facial expressions that will tell you a lot about an individual. For instance, it will tell you that he is not Tom. And I realized that after I had already introduced myself, I was, would have sworn he was the man. But he was not the man. He was like him. Right? There's a group of people who knew this beggar. They knew him well enough to know him. But when something had changed radically, uh, he's like him. He's not him. Maybe he is him. He's like him. Uh, it was Augustine who said that there is something about this man's countenance that had changed so much that it made people think that they knew him but that they really didn't know him. And Augustine said that the healing of the man's eyes, because there's so much that you can tell about somebody from their eyes, like the fact that they're not Tom, there's something about his eyes now that he can see that was so radically different, it changed his entire countenance. And he looked like a different individual. You, you understand that, don't you? You know how much of your countenance is dependent upon your eyes? And when your eyes, can, when your eyes go from one thing to another, it changes everything about your countenance. Imagine going from seeing only darkness, and that is your whole life, and that is all you have ever known. And then suddenly you see everything, and you see everything clearly. Do you think his face looked differently? His face looked radically different because his eyes were radically different. He had new eyes. He saw everything. And he was no longer going to be go back and be a beggar. He was no longer going to live the life that he once knew. He was a changed man, and everybody could see it. Now, do you see the spiritual parallels or symbolisms there? It's obvious, right? I don't even know to point it out. Once an individual goes from darkness to light, and once they go from not seeing anything to seeing everything clearly, listen, you are a changed man. And anybody who is saved, everybody around them ought to say, that's him, but it's not him. He is him, but he is a different him. Something is different. Something is so radically different that though he is the same man, he is not the same man. Well, that's what happens when somebody goes from darkness to light and from blindness to sight. All right, now look at verse 9. Others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but he is like him. And he kept saying, I am the one. I am the one. So he answers it. That, that is me. I am the one who used to beg. Now I can see. I was the one born blind. Now I can see. 
I used to beg, now I'm not. Yes, you're wondering, is this the same man who used to sit at the temple gate and beg? That's me. I am the one. So now their next and most obvious question is this. How then do you now see? Look at verse 10. So they were saying to him, how then were your eyes open? Now they want to know how this has happened. If you were the one who was born blind, and they know that blind men don't begin seeing just out of the ordinary, out of the blue. How has this happened? How did this come to be? Because it has never been heard that anybody opened the eyes of a man born blind. Has it? Verse 32. So how is it that you now see? And look what he gives. He gives his testimony. And I love how simple and sweet it is. Verse 11. He answered, The man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed, and I received sight. That's sweet, simple, clear, no embellishments, no elaboration. In fact, if you read up at verse 6, when he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Now the man gives the exact same story with all of the exact same details in just as concise and simple a manner as John first relates it. The man says to him, the man who is called Jesus made clay, anointed my eyes, said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away, I washed, and I see. Just simple. No embellishment. No retelling of the story. Just a simple testimony. I want you to notice two things about it. Notice, first of all, how he refers to Jesus or how he describes Jesus. He is the man called Jesus. Now, was Jesus a man? He was a man. But he was more than just a man. In fact, he was the man who claimed to be the I Am. That's the end of chapter 8. So he was a man, but he was far more than a man. But at this stage of the game, the blind man who now sees only knows him as the man who is called Jesus. How he knew his name was Jesus, we don't know. We don't know from the text if Jesus ever introduced himself to him while he was blind and applying the clay to his eyes, or if he simply had heard about Jesus, or if he had heard his name mentioned by somebody in the crowd while all of this was going on and he was applying the clay and making the clay and the spittle and all of that. don't know how he knew it was Jesus, but he just knows him as the man who is called Jesus. Now, here's the beautiful thing. Over the course of chapter 9, this man's understanding of Jesus is going to change radically. He is going to go from one level of understanding who Jesus is to another level of understanding who Jesus is as he has time to reflect upon it and to think about what has happened and to pass this through his own theological filter and come to conclusions and thinking of what he knew about the Old Testament and what he had heard. He's going to have a deeper understanding of who Jesus is. In fact, in his first encounter with the Pharisees, look what he says in verse 17. So they, that is the Pharisees, said to the blind man, What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. We've gone from a man called Jesus to a prophet. Now later on in his second encounter with these Pharisees, after they've called his parents in and grilled them, they call the man in again and ask him a second time about what has gone on. And look what the man says in verse 31. We know that God does not hear sinners. But if everyone, anyone is God-fearing and does His will, He hears Him. So what is He affirmed about Jesus now? He is sinless. He does the will of God. Verse 32, Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So now He affirms that He is somebody who is sinless. He hears God. God hears Him. He's doing the work of God. He is sent from God on a mission. And thus we should listen to him. And then later on, still one more step to go. When Jesus finds the man in the temple, verse 35, Jesus heard that he had put him out and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. 
Now listen, verse, verse 11, he just calls Jesus a man called Jesus. But he goes from a man known as Jesus to a prophet, to one who is sent from God, who is sinless, whom God hears, to worshiping him as God. That's quite a transition, isn't it? This man's understanding of who Jesus is. When I got saved, I my, it is safe to say, when I got saved, my understanding of who Jesus Christ is was not nearly what it is today. I hope that that can be said of each and every individual who's trusted Christ for salvation. We grow in our understanding of who God is and what He has done for us. Nobody comes into the Christian faith understanding everything about our blessed triune God. All of us come in understanding what it, what it means to be saved and to trust in Christ as our God and our King and our Lord and our Savior. But over the course of our salvation, our sanctification, we grow in our understanding of who God is and what He has done to deeper and deeper levels of understanding of that, of the significance of who He is. That is what this man is doing through the course of this chapter. He gets deeper and deeper and more profound the more he talks about it, the more he understands until he finally recognizes that this one standing in his presence is God Himself. And he worships Him. Second, I want you to notice the man's testimony, how sweet and simple it is. And I would ask you this. Can you give a testimony like that, sweet and simple, of your conversion experience? And he said, Jim, I, I can never give my testimony. The only way that that is true is if you don't have one because you've never been saved. Listen, if your eyes have been opened from darkness to light, then you can certainly tell somebody else who did that and how that happened. And I'm not talking about a 25-minute explanation of homardiology and soteriology and all the big and, and rabbit trails off into how you know I was born a poor black boy in a, in a white neighborhood and I'm not talking about anything like that. I'm just talking about a simple, straightforward testimony of how you got saved. I was once a hopeless, rebellious, lost sinner. I was blind. I was guilty before God. God, through the preaching of His Word as an act of His Holy Spirit, caused me to be born again. He saved me. He regenerated me. He opened my eyes. He gave me new life. He cleansed my conscience. He forgave my sin. And He adopted me into His family when I obeyed what he said to do, and that is to repent of my sin and place my faith in Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. You can say that, right? What was that, one sentence? It was one sentence. Now, there's a lot contained in that sentence, I know. But you can say that. If you have been translated from darkness to light, you can describe that. The only way you can't describe it is if it's never happened to you. You give a sweet, short testimony like that. So look what they do. They, he's given them a short, sweet testimony. All of the essential facts are in place. The man called Jesus. I did my eyes with clay. He said this. He said to go do this. I went and I did this, and now I see. That's all the man knows, right? I once was blind, but now I see. That's all he has. That's all he's known. He really can't give any more details than that. And so then they ask him in verse 12, they said to him, where is he? I don't know. Why did he not know? Do you realize that this man right now could not pick Jesus out of a lineup? He's never seen him. He walked away from the presence of Jesus blind. He's never seen the one who gave him sight. He couldn't pick Jesus out of a lineup. He has no idea where he's at. He has no idea even how to find him. In fact, later on when Jesus finally does meet up with him, it's Jesus who finds the man. The man couldn't find Jesus. He didn't know what Jesus looked like. And the man had to seek him out. This man has no idea where Jesus is at. But here's the question. Why did his neighbors want to know where Jesus was at? What are they thinking? Maybe they want to meet this miracle worker. Maybe they know some people born blind themselves and they want to see them helped. Or maybe they've come to the conclusion that this man is a man sent from God and so we should hear him and we should listen to what he has to say and we should obey his teaching. Maybe these people have come to the conclusion that Jesus is God in human flesh 
and they want to worship Him as well. You think? Judging from verse 13, I would say that their motives are anything but pure. Anything but good. Unable to find Jesus, they grab the man who was born blind and take him to the Pharisees. Now, if they could have found Jesus, whom do you think they would have taken? They would have taken Jesus. Do you notice what is completely absent from these people's response to His miracle? Not a single person has said, Praise the Lord, that's amazing. Not a single person has rejoiced that this man can now see. What do they want? They want to grab Jesus and they want to take Him to the authorities because this happened, verse 14, on the Sabbath. And that needs an answer. And that's why they're asking where Jesus is at. I told you when we began, when we began our study of John 9 that this chapter is loaded with a bunch of questions, right? Remember that? I think it's 17 or 18 questions are asked in the ninth chapter of John's Gospel. It's question after question after question. And guess who knows the answers to questions? Nobody knows the answers to questions. Everybody's asking questions. And when they finally give an answer, I don't know. How did he receive his sight? I don't know. His parents don't know. The man doesn't know where Jesus is at. The Pharisees don't know. All they're asking is questions. They're getting no answers. They have no understanding whatsoever. And still in this passage, who is it that we see now is the blind ones in John 9, 8 through 12? Who's the blind ones? His neighbors are blind, right? They're blind to the truth. Now they want to persecute the one who has done a miracle for their neighbor. That is spiritual blindness. They are the blind ones, and they know the answers to none of these questions. And all they're going to do is ask this man questions. He's in for a lot more questions. You know why? Because as far as they are concerned, he has a lot to answer for. Right? You were blind and now you see. You better start answering questions, buddy. What type of insanity is that? That's the type of insanity you expect from a bunch of blind people who, want, who hate the light and they don't want to come to the light lest their deeds be exposed. And we'll look at the next response next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have made clear in Your Word so many things. We thank You for Your grace to us in giving us sight. And every time we look at this man and what he has gone through and what he did, we are reminded of just what You have done for us in the spiritual realm. You have opened our eyes. You have given us life and light. You have made us to see Your truth and Your Son. And we thank You that You have called us out of darkness. It is all by Your grace, and so You are to receive all of the glory from the lips and the hearts of Your people. And we thank You that we will have eternity to sing Your praise and to thank You for what You have done for us. We pray, O God, that You would give us hearts that are filled with gratitude, abundant gratefulness for all that You've done for us. We pray that You would help us to be vessels that You would use to share the testimony of being made to see with all who are asked and all around us, even whether they ask or not. Give us boldness in that endeavor that You might be glorified since you have made us uh, tapestries upon which your work is displayed, since you have caused us to be vessels through which your glory is manifest, we pray that you would do that to a watching world and all the unbelievers around us, that you would receive glory by calling more people out of darkness into light. Be honored and praised, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.